Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Welcome to the podcast. Today we have Jason Becker, who's the CEO of Dino and a repeat podcast guest. And I can't remember exactly which episode it was, but it would have been like two months ago. I think I think that's right. Does that seem about, right? Yeah, it was about two months ago. All right. Well, Jason, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And you're here for a different company. We're here to talk about Dino. So why don't we start with a quick pitch for Dino and what you and your team do? Sure. So Dino helps teachers defeat distractions in their classroom. Uh, practically, what our software does is give teachers a real-time view of what's happening on their students' devices while they're teaching. As you can imagine, you know, classrooms are now filled with personal devices as well as school-issued devices. And those devices create tremendous distractions in classrooms for teachers. And so what we do is eliminate those distractions by giving a teacher a way to see what's happening in real time as well as interact with the students on those same devices. Make that a little bit more tangible for me. If I'm a student, what's my experience? And if I'm a teacher, what's my actual experience? One of the best things about Dino is that it works very passively in the classroom. In terms of the student experience, there is no user interface. So this is an application installed on the school-issued device that will run in the background. So from a student perspective, they're just going on about their class. And from a teacher experience, you know, our teachers, some of them use the product very actively and some of them use it very passively. Uh, those active teachers will keep a browser open, which will show them uh, basically a tiled arrangement of all those live thumbnails that are broadcasting what's happening on those student devices. Uh, from there, a teacher can drill in to a specific student's screen and take a bigger view of what's happening, can send that student a message to get back on task or to pay attention. And then we have other teachers who use it very passively. In some cases, once the students know that Dino is in their classroom monitoring what's happening on those devices, they just do the right thing and right. pay attention. They stop playing Fortnite and start caring more about you know, Algebra 2. You can play Fortnite in school. It happens. Life is so much better now than it was when we were kids. <laughs> it's very different, right? And I think one of the one of the most interesting things about the 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 recognition we get when we go to expos or we are at trade shows, we have this really phenomenal display uh, that shows Fortnite on a jumbo screen, right? And essentially conveying the message that you know without Dino, this is probably happening in your classroom, right. and teachers immediately recognize the pain. That's awesome. Uh, current status for somebody who's listening, paint a picture with any kind of vanity metrics or stats that you'd like uh, as to where you guys are as a business. How long have uh, you guys been around? How big is the team? Revenue, funding, number of classrooms, students, whatever, anything you can do. Sure. So I think we should just start from the origin. All right. Right on. Dino as a company was founded in the very early 2000s around some intellectual property that was created at DePaul University. Also, coincidentally, my alma mater, a computer science professor there by the name of Dave Burke, wrote a piece of software to bring interaction and collaboration between professors and students in the classroom. That experience that Dr. Burke was able to create for his classroom essentially evolved into a commercialized product. And that was commercialized in the very early 2000s. And so the business has been around for almost 20 years, which is kind of remarkable yeah. in, in tech, especially ed tech, because most, most ed tech that we would commonly talk about today, you know, this has all come onto the scene very recently. Um, so Dino's had a, a quite a legacy, uh, but there's been a lot of change, you know, over that time period. The product that we have and sell now is not the product that was created 20 years ago. The company's gone through tremendous change. How many times has that, has the core like underlying product change been rewritten? If you had to guess, how many times has that happened? Great question. I, certainly twice. You could probably argue that a third time here in the last three years, as we smoothed off some very rough edges on our reboot, um, I think, you know, it'd be interesting to talk about, you know, how we 
how we made that decision, yeah. you know, to, to do it. The, the initial dyno offering was to provide connectivity between a smart board in the front of a classroom and the students' screens. So if you can imagine sitting in a computer lab in 2002, and I did say lab, right? I can't imagine that. I th- I'm pretty sure I was. Nobody was carrying around iPads and laptops and smartphones. They weren't a thing in school in 2002. But what was a thing was these really expensive computer labs. And what Dino did was connect the professor at the smart board with the screens that the students were looking at. And in that time period, ink strokes showing up on the front of the classroom and then on your screen in real time was like magic. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. And the professor being able to take over the student's screen and draw on that student's screen and interact with them from the front of the room was magic. Well, the whole world changed over the last 20 years, not only in terms of the internet, its speed, its reliability, the way software is delivered, the way computing devices are used in the classroom, the whole world changed. And that original uh, magical value proposition of connecting the teacher with students started to go away and started to become less magical when collaborative software tools came onto the market like Google Drive or Microsoft OneNote or you know insert any other modern yeah. collaborative uh, platform. And so the company and its product had some product market fit challenges that were severe. How long, uh, so I'm assuming when the product first launched 20 years ago, it was very focused on colleges, right? That's the use case it came out of. Is that true? It started there and quickly went into K-12 education. Okay, so it, in did. Terms it of, did go there quick. Okay. Absolutely. So there were, you know, there were public and private schools all over the United States using the Dino product. We had schools in Australia using that original Dino product. There were schools in China using that original Dino product because for the time period it was built in, it solved for a really unique problem and it solved for a really unique opportunity to run a classroom differently. But like I said, the whole world changed in terms of internet, the way software is delivered in devices. And unfortunately, you know, Dino did not change with that world for a long time. Right. And that's what caused uh, the product market fit to become a real challenge for the business. But, you know, in every challenge, there's an opportunity and it kind of opened the door for us to reevaluate what are the things that we're doing for educators that matter and, and what about our product is valued. And we were able to figure that out. And that's why the company is existing today. That's why it's growing. and It's why it's very healthy today. Go back to healthy, share some of, again, so so how big is the company today? Uh, how many classrooms? Any Anything you can share there? You bet. So the company has less than 15 employees. It is bootstrapped, which means we're a real business that makes more than it spends. <laughs> uh, it's one of my favorite disclaimers on, on the company. Um, I love the implicit bias in that definition of bootstrap. Absolutely. It's great. All of that being said, you know, we're in hundreds of schools in the United States. I believe sometime last week, I think we hit one of our highest monitoring days. We had over 500,000 students monitored in a single day. Um, of course, there are more students that are licensed than are monitored yeah. on any given day. Right. Uh, but we're monitoring hundreds of thousands of devices every single day across the United States. And we're solving a real pain for those teachers who don't know what's happening on their devices in the classroom uh, and want to avoid those distractions in the classroom. Awesome. And only because yesterday Joe Rogan dropped the Edward Snowden podcast. How closely do you collaborate with the NSA uh, around that monitoring? Not at all. That, but that's a relevant question. I mean, question. blink twice if you can't really talk about it. <laughs> Fair enough. I, for the record, I did not blink. It is uh, privacy is an important issue, and you know our software is only monitoring during classroom periods. There's a lot of architecture and things in the background that make that work the way it does, uh, but it is only monitoring during those classroom sessions. Awesome. 
is there any sort of, and I, you'd think I'd know this because I have kids, but it turns out my wife is way more involved as a parent than I am. So she probably knows some of the answers to these, but how involved is the parent at all in any of the, that like di- disclaimer discussion? Do they have to sign anything? Is that, is all this, it's just done through the school and it's not even a factor. How does that work? One of the things that's interesting about this value proposition yeah. of monitoring student activity during the classroom is that it's all designed to keep students' attention, keep them focused on what they're supposed to be doing in the classroom. And we've had tremendous feedback from teachers and parents alike who have a lot of questions and curiosity about, hey, why is my son or daughter struggling in school? Mm -hmm. Or why is my son or daughter getting grades that we don't expect them to get in a certain class? And you know, when you can show a, a pattern of attention challenges or focus challenges, you can have a conversation about those things. Many of our teachers uh, who find themselves in really difficult situations with parents are able to have an honest conversation about their son or daughter's behavior in the classroom. Um, in terms of, you know, waivers or authorizations or anything like that, um, it is a school issue device and the school preloads all of that software. I'm sure that schools have unique policies per, per their school, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we're, we're not involved in that. Right on. So today, the, is the primary market sounds like it's K through 12? Yes. So our target market is K-12 education, both public and private. We have all different sizes of schools that are clients. Uh, we serve schools that will have 100 licenses. We serve schools that have 36,000 licenses for Dino. So we can serve the very small schools as well as the very large districts. And I think you know that the reason for that is the problem is the same, whether you've got one classroom or 10,000. It's, it, it's the same problem, which is a device in a student's hand can be very distracting. And how long have you been at Dino? So I've been involved for about seven years. So I've been involved in this transition of old product to new product. And I give all the credit to the team at Dino for recognizing uh, the product market fit challenge we had, what to do about it, and then the hard work to get through that challenge. Um, It was not some off the top of any one individual's uh, head. It was a lot of thoughtful analysis that, that kind of led us through that journey. So that you just articulated my next question perfectly. Let's jump into Dino when you got there. So take us back to that time. Like, what did you see? How did you and the team recognize a problem and that needed to be fixed and then start unpacking how things unfolded from there? Yeah. So well, going back to 2012 and I can really lop in 2012 to 2014 as a single time period. It was kind of the opening chapter of of my involvement directly in the dyno business. You know, there were some things that are were very observable. Number one, um, flat or very incremental growth. Number two, very bad margins in terms of what it took to support and sustain the offering that was in the market and, and then what we were getting for that. So there was... Uh, very minimal, if no profitability at all uh, for the company. In a sense, the company was in an unsustainable position. It was not making more than it was spending. Growth was slow. There's only one thing you can do is you really start looking at well, why don't people want the things that we're building? And I think, you know, and we might have talked about this before, but, you know, the, one of the number one goals in product is to make things that people want. So you don't have to spend an extraordinary amount of money trying to make people want your things. And there was no sales and marketing that was going to overcome an obvious product market fit challenge that, that Dino had at that time. And that really opened the door for exploration around, well, what are we going to do about that? So let's talk about that product market fit problem when you first got there, was that a was that a, a a systemic problem that had been going on for a long period of time? Was that a like was there a period of time where there was there was really heavy growth and and it had just plateaued because of competition in the market? Talk to me, like unpack that a little bit, like to, to the fact that you you were just obviously aware of something that maybe was working isn't working anymore or it's never worked or whatever that is. 
So if I can rewind back and, and I'm, and I'm putting some assumptions out here, right? Yeah. Because I was not directly involved in the business at that time, but I know the story. And what I know to be true about those first 10 or 15 years of the dyno business is that they built a premium product for an audience that valued that premium experience. And there were so many people that were raving fans of Dino's original collaboration tools and everything that Dino offered. But what happened over that same time period is, like I said, the, the market, the whole world changed in terms of internet speed and reliability, connectivity, devices, both personal and in the classroom, no more labs. The whole world of devices in education changed in that time period. And although those raving dyno fans still existed, the market generally didn't feel the same. And so I think, you know, if the folks who were involved in those first 15 years of dyno were in this conversation today, they would say, we were doing great work. We built a product that mattered. We were getting unbelievable feedback, which is all true. The challenge that the business found itself in is that there weren't enough of those people out there who valued that premium product experience at a premium price. And I think that's probably the best way to characterize it without having been intimately involved in that time period. There just wasn't the market for what was built. Walk us through the process that you guys followed to figure out what was the right thing to build. It started first with a great deal of introspection by some of our key tem- team members at Dino. Uh, the best way to explain it is we rallied together as a group around that 2014 timeframe and said, what are we doing that is really valuable? Let's just, let's look at everything this product suite does. Because at that time, the legacy product was big. It was feature rich, did a lot of things, had modules. And so it gave us an opportunity to really look across our product suite and say, what is the thing we're doing that's creating value? And what came right to the top was monitoring. How did that come to the top? Was that quantitative, qualitative? Did you just look at logs and you could see that everybody's monitoring? Or did you have to go out to customers and talk to them about that to All discover of the above. All the above. All of the above. When I say we went through this introspective, reflective exercise, we left no stone unturned. We thought critically as, as people inside the business about what we know to be true about the value. We asked customers. We went on site with customers to talk about what are you actually doing with Dino in your classrooms? What are you, what are you doing? What are you hoping it will do? And the thing we kept hearing over and over was, hey, we want to be able to monitor those students' devices so that they don't become you know, a distraction in our classroom. And I mean, just over and over, we kept hearing the same thing over and over and over. And once we, once we got that feedback, we realized, hey, there's a path here. It wasn't obvious at first. I'll be, I'll be totally frank. When we looked at, in, in that 2014 timeframe about you know, re, redoing the product and, and relaunching on a new product market fit, the outcome was unassured. It was a big bet, but we knew that the product market fit that we had was expiring very quickly and there was no bright future for that product market fit. So we really had no choice. But to go deep and figure out what 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 else, what else are we going to do? So then, let's talk about that next generation of the product. Was that a complete rewrite from the ground up? Was that a let's copy and paste the code and we're just going to start stripping stuff out of it? Complete and, rewrite and making it simpler. Complete rewrite. Talk about that decision. That decision was really easy to make because it was obvious, but hard to execute. You know. It, in, in, when, when you go through something like that as a company, you're acknowledging and admitting that although the work we had previously done had value in the past, it's not valuable anymore. And hey, that's an emotional decision. And you're asking people who worked really hard to make that old product work the way it does, start over. That's a big ask. 
So although from a business decision, it was really easy to make. It's like, there's no path forward for this. Executing that's hard and getting people to rally behind a net new uh, build and a from scratch effort is, is very difficult. And I'm proud of everybody who was involved in that because it was a big deal. So, you know, the decision was purely a business one. It was not a technical, it was not a technical analysis because you know, we could look at what we had and realize that there was no copy and paste path forward. How big was the dyno team when you got there? It was bigger than it is now. Uh, it was over 20 people. Um, and, and, you know, we had to go through some organizational change to refocus on this new product market fit and make sure that we can run sustainably. You know, there, there's, there was no bailout coming. There was <laughs> no desire to raise venture capital. There was no desire to take on additional investors. The, the directive was make this company work, make this business work. And that's what we did. From a business perspective, super interested in this. Um, if when you get there, it's a, I don't want to put words in your mouth. This is me paraphrasing what I think I heard. You can correct me. A, a barely profitable business. Uh, not not a hugely profitable business when you first get there. You recognize you need to make a, a major investment to start turning things around. Where does that, and, and so that's time and money, right? Which time is, is, is just mostly money. So, yeah. so where does that come from if you're not bringing an outside investment? Is there a pile of cash sitting around in the business from prior years that you can spend? Is it, um, we need a strategy to do this that, you know, we can keep current customers happy enough that they can keep paying that we can take that little margin that we have and, and reinvest it. How did you finance that pivot in the company? The way we financed that pivot in the company was by thoughtfully doing two things at once. You know, we kept our current product operational, meeting our customers' expectations and, and high functioning for a long time while we were building this new product. And we were using the proceeds of that revenue to fund our future. Um, and it was enough, right? It was enough to fund version one of what is now the Dino product. And I think that that, you know, in retrospect, it was a great way to do it because it provided really natural constraints for us. We didn't have a blank check. We didn't have a pile of cash that we could just burn and hope for the best. We had to be really intentional about starting small, getting something to market and in the market, getting feedback on that and making it better with a lot of constraints. Once you understood what you needed to build, how long was it until you had your first version of the product in the market? Jeez, uh, looking back and thinking through the timeline, I mean, it was at least 18 months. Okay. At least. And then, you know, V1 of that new experience right. is now not what the product is, right? I mean, we had to iterate on right. top of that. So I, I would say looking back, it, it was probably 2016 before we were legitimately in market and bringing on new schools onto that new product, as well as transitioning many of our existing customers from the legacy product to the new one. So two interesting things to unpack during that time period for me. One is you know, my experience with product teams that are going through rewrites, going through that process is that you often have the people who are feel like they're left behind on the legacy product. Yeah. You have the people who are tagged to, to do the exciting new development on the new product. And you get this kind of, you know, class of classes of people within your company, the people who, who get to do the new, exciting, forward-looking product and the people who are kind of left behind. How did you navigate that? Very carefully and honestly, we talked about the reasons why we needed to establish a new product fit, product market fit, and a, and a new product in, you know, out there very openly and candidly. It was not a secret project. It was not a cloak and dagger operation. We celebrated our history and where we came from as a company and acknowledged that we needed to do something different in order to have another 10-year, 15-year opportunity. And everybody understood. Not everyone agreed. And that's okay. You know, a couple people opted out. and That's fine. Wish them all the best. They're doing wonderfully, by the way. <laughs> that being said, 
you know, that's a challenging thing. And, and, and we tried to apply change management principles and kind of org level conversations about why we were doing what we were doing. And in the end, I, I'm sure there are folks who you know, would have loved to have only been working on the new thing that we're still working on supporting the old thing, but that's just what was required. And we were pretty honest about it. That same question for your customers, then how many of the customers came over to the new product uh, eventually, not necessarily out of the gate, but how many of those customers came over versus how many of them were like, you left me behind. Like, I loved the thing that you had. I don't need or want that. Yeah. There were certainly some customers who loved the collaborative tool that the legacy Dino product represented. Yeah. And they were still able to use that, right? We didn't take it away. They they owned a perpetual license. Oh, so there are that schools, does make it easier, right? That makes it a lot easier, right? You got to wrap your mind around. We're not talking about from one SaaS product to another. Yeah. We're talking about from a legacy perpetual license installed delivered model to something SaaS delivered. Interesting. So that alone can significantly change the economic outlook of the company going forward. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's, so that's a nice pivot. Uh, 100%. I mean, yeah. This was a big deal pivot for this company. Yeah. It was not only a pivot of product, it was a pivot of business yeah. model. I'm sorry I missed that until now. Yeah, that's, it's that's all great. Good. Uh, but that, I mean, so that's why, I mean, I think that will help you understand and, and everyone understand that's why we were able to continue bringing revenue in the door from this perpetual support model and help fund the SaaS model and kind of do two things at once. So there are still schools out there right now using the legacy dino product. And I'm happy that they love it, but it's just not going to be what makes us successful. Do you still support it? No. Okay. So we did have to make a decision to in support for that product because it was expensive and we had to release something new every single year. And it was a big deal and a big effort and it cost us real money. So we had to ultimately in support for that product, but we did not do that until the new product was very stable and solving the problem we set out for it to solve. This episode is brought to you by Full Stack PEO. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need, not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Full Stack PEO. Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at fullstackpeo.com. When you look at the market today for the current Dino product, who do you view as competitors or what? Who or what do you view as competitors? The ed tech market is becoming very similar to like marketing tech. There are an incredible amount of technology offerings designed for educators. To understand our competition, I think you have to understand the, the landscape of where we play, right? So the category that Dino plays in is called classroom management. There are lots of other categories of products that are sold into ed education, but we are in the classroom management space. Within classroom management, there are some monitoring providers that not only do classroom management things, but they'll do some other things on the IT and infrastructure side, like internet monitoring at the administrative and IT level. That's different, right? That's, that's something controlled outside the classroom. It's kind of imposed on the district and on the schools. And there are legal rules that say you have to be able to control your internet, right? We don't do that. So we are built for the classroom and we are built for the teacher. There are other providers in our space that do the same thing we do. Interestingly, our biggest competition really is not those providers. Our biggest competition as a business are the very robust sales organizations repping all of those products that I mentioned earlier. In a sense, you know, there are other tool providers like Dino. But they're not our direct. I mean, they're, they're a substitute product. And if they're using our tool, 
a school, if a school is using Dino, they're not using that other tool, right? So they're substitutes. Um, they're not complements, they're substitutes, but they're really not our direct competition. Our, our, our competition is really those sales organizations, CDW and other resellers or bundlers. They're very competitive because they're, they're calling these schools every day. Do you work through any resellers like that? We're starting to. And I think that's been the aha over the last 12 months as we look at how products are sold into schools. One thing that's really clear is that we have to find a way to play ball with those relationship holders because they do a nice job. And I, and when I say that, you know, CDW is our competitor, that's not to paint CDW in a bad light. They're a phenomenal company doing excellent work. But if someone's buying and procuring all their things from CDW, then they're not buying from Dino. In that sense, they are a direct competitor. Right on. So we're having to mitigate that competitive force by finding ways to align and partner and work together with these organizations. When you look to the next five to 10 years of this business, are the challenges that you see in front of you more business model challenges like that? Like that's a sales channel, you know, strategy, problem, question, innovation, or is it more you know, core technology struggles, like how do we do monitoring on virtual reality headsets? Or is it more, which I have to assume is part of the conversation, right? Or is it more, you know, the nature of the business and our the, the way our customer, you know, is it going to be more product market fit? Like the way our customers use our product and think about our product is evolved and we need to evolve with that again in another big leap forward. What When you look forward on this business, what are the challenges that you project out five to 10 years from now? Wow. Um, yeah, it's both. It's certainly both. And we are actively trying to solve for both. I think one of the things that's true about Dino as a business is that it is a, it is a product and a product market fit that requires constant evaluation because there's a lot that goes into it. If you just think about what our product does in a practical sense, it works on multiple device types. So you can monitor Windows machines, uh, MacBooks, monitor Chromebooks, et cetera. So you're, you're delivering a service on multiple devices, which means you have to get it installed on multiple device types. You're dealing with browser compatibility issues, which change all the time. Every day, there's a team of people that wakes up making sure that our product works. And that, that's not going to ever end. So ours is not a product that you can set and forget. And the devices that are being brought into the classroom are also changing all the time. So we find ourselves in this vortex of change that is never going to slow down. So we might be gluttons for punishment or or just having a good time doing it. But it's a hard, it's a really hard business to be in because it requires everyday attention to making sure that our product works. So that's on the tech side. So to answer your question, it's an emphatic yes. <laughs> There's going to be problems on the horizon that we have to be prepared and willing to solve. Just as important as those product problems is the way the offering is sold into the market. We have to be, we have to be more strategic on that. We're doing a great job of connecting directly with schools and educators right now with our team, and they're great at it. But we need to amplify that. We need to reach out and, and get into more places uh, than, when we're, than we're able to do with the team we have. And that requires alignment and partnership. Is the product still international? There are a couple of international schools that still use Dino, but fewer than we had on the legacy product. We still get calls. I think as recent as within the last month, we were talking to someone in Great Britain um, I believe there was a conversation in Australia. So it happens, but it's not a primary focus of ours. We are fully concentrated on solving U.S.-based K-12 classroom problems. Thank you. That That is great insight into that business. So I want to zoom out because as a repeat guest, you have, I think, a, a special story that not uh, not everybody is is going to have familiarity with. You're the CEO of two businesses right now, Rick's and Dino. 
talk a little bit about how you manage that, both in terms of attention and focus, leadership team, because it is a different thing than being able to just be 100% focused on one thing. How does that work for you? I ask myself that question (laughs) often. In all seriousness, first things first, it's about getting the right team in place. And that's such a cliche answer. But honestly, it's made all the difference. It's what's enabled me to be a high-functioning participant in each business. You know, one of the things that's true about the way we operate these companies is that everyone involved is very actively involved. We're in the details. We're in the weeds of what we're doing. There's no executive, you know, golfers. You know what I mean? They're, they're not people pretending to work on or in the business. Everybody involved is really involved, um, which is exciting. Uh, but it, it's been about getting the right personnel in place, the right structures and oversight mechanisms and kind of the operational guts of like making the company work, making the business run. Uh, That's been so important for us. We have, you know, an organizational operating system that we follow and we've been able to implement that in both companies, which has made a big difference. And is that a known organizational operating system? Is that like traction or is that something that you guys have come up with yourselves? Uh, we've done a little bit of crockpot cooking in that regard. You know, it, from a background standpoint, you know, I, I practiced organizational strategy or design and change management as a management consultant for uh, about half a decade and studied it uh, afterwards in, in graduate school. And so I've, you know, I've taken a little bit from a lot of different organizations and a lot of different academic theory on how to structure and how to run and operate. So there's really no you know, fancy business book we're following. Yeah, because uh, you're going to write one. Maybe. Uh, we'll see, right? My wife's going to kill me uh, if she hears this. <laughs> uh, but we're, we're, we're really excited to be operating these companies. And, and in full transparency, you know, our, our goal over the next 12, 18 months is we want two or three more. We're becoming really uh, effective and efficient. Who is we? We. So let's define we. That'd be my leadership team. Uh, I work very closely with my, you know, my partner, our CFO, our VP of product and technology, our VP of service. We're very focused as a team on. And that that whole team is the leadership team of both companies. That's right. Do those companies share ownership? There is some shared ownership, but it's not the same in each company. It's not the same in each company. So for the shared ownership, that feels like a very straightforward conversation. For the for the owners who don't have shared interest in the two companies, any conflict that emerges coming out of that? I think it's a I think it's an appropriate question. And I think the way we've overcome any conflict that might arise there is through performance. Uh, both companies are performing very well. And uh, you know, there might be a better way to do it, perhaps a, a better way to structure, but our performance kind of speaks for itself in that regard. When you look at future opportunities, will those be opportunities uh, where you're acquiring a company and th- and then doing t- something similar to Dino, where you're you're taking that company to the next level of performance? Or do you think these are more greenfield opportunities where you're identifying a new need in the market and building a company from scratch? Boy, from scratch is real hard, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> um, I think the thing that excites me most is, is finding that company that needs an organizational pivot, a product pivot, um, a reboot, you know, a, a reset. That, that's what we're really built to help do. We don't have you know, the historical competency or legacy of creating something from scratch and I'm totally comfortable with that. It's really difficult. We'd, we'd like to look for opportunities for us to align or assist or, or help help other companies grow. And I think that's what we'll probably end up doing. How far do you think you can scale that before you need to start backfilling key roles from your leadership team in the companies that you're, I don't want to say moving on from, but spending less time with? We will need to continue building out kind of our, our leadership teams in both companies and in each company that we ever participate in. It's really hard to do. And, you know, we need to be careful and thoughtful about how you do it. But 
we, we really can't add more to our plate without also scaling, you know, our, our leadership and our management and our, our structure uh, would have to scale before we would do anything like that. You know, because we have a serious obligation. We're running two very real businesses that matter to the people who use our products. And, and I think we're doing a great job of it right now. And, I, and I'm excited to keep working on it. Uh, but I know long term, you know, we want to we look for opportunities as well. What are some of the key components of the organizational operating system that you and the team have, have built out that you think has contributed to that ability to manage focus across different products? And, and different companies, different markets, completely different markets, right? Like it's not even just different products. You're not running to ed tech companies. <laughs> you're like you're just, you have e-commerce and ed tech and, and no overlap, right? So that is even a, in my mind, in many ways, an even more special thing because you're, you have to deeply understand two different sets of competition. You need to understand two different buyer's journeys. You need to understand... Uh, in, in a lot of cases, d- different, just completely different technology and constraints and regulatory issues. What are some of the principles, practices, shared beliefs amongst that team that allows that to, to, to work? There is deep subject matter expertise inside of each company on the market, the clients, the product, and a deep understanding of why each company works right and and the value expected the problems solved and how we do it so there's deep subject matter expertise in each one of the companies in addition to that deep subject matter expertise there's a communications operating system that runs the same in each company and i'm going to start from the very bottom and go up we have a one-on-one feedback practice in each company that is pretty effective and scales at the newest employee of each company all the way up to me and my CFO. We meet every month uh, one-on-one between manager and, and, and teammate to talk about what are the top three items of scope on your plate? What are you most excited about? What are you least excited about? What are the skills you want to develop and grow? What are the areas of risk that you see that I don't see? And we have a standard practice of feedback collection across both organizations that starts with, like I said, the most recent employee all the way up to me and our CFO. And that happens monthly. And that that communication infrastructure that we're running helps information flow faster, more clearly and more accurately than anything I've ever been a part of in any other organization. Now, I used to work on this stuff as a consultant. So I would try to help our clients implement these practices to some success or or no success because I can't make them do it. But in these companies, I can make us do it, which (laughs) which is a little different and exciting. And it's worked out because we're we're on the same page. So we, we have a feedback mechanism that is running in each company that's really effective. Because we have that feedback mechanism running, we communicate internally with radical transparency and candor. Every employee understands our financials. Every employee understands the risks, issues, and threats that we're thinking about as people inside the business. Every employee can walk into my office or have a conversation with anyone else about any topic, there's nothing off limits in either of these companies. It's just the way we work. And it's not for everybody because that's really intimidating um, and can be really difficult for folks who are not used to working that way. I've had so many people join both companies who say, I've never seen anything like this before because you guys are just laying it bare. I said, well, you know, when you just tell the truth, you don't have to have a very good memory. <laughs> just tell, tell things the way they are, right? And just, just be honest with people. And that, that's what's made each one of these companies work. There's two things going through my mind. One, I guess one of them really quick. Um, I remember I was on a panel years ago with Martha Hoover 
um, founder of Patichu and like 20 other <laughs> restaurants feels, feels like. And, and she once said, you could walk into any one of our restaurants, talk to any employee in the restaurant and ask them, uh, what, what's the vision for the, for the Patichu family of restaurants and, and what are our big goals this year? And she's like, anybody would tell you. So of course, later that day, I went into a Patichu and had lunch and one of the somebody was bussing tables next to me and I, I leaned over and I said, Hey, what are the, what are the big goals for, for Patichu this year? He rattled them off. Like it was legit. He's, yeah. he, he almost said literally word for word what she said at, at the panel, which begs the question for me, if I sat down with one of your employees at Rick's, would they be able to explain your financials to me? I think they'd come pretty darn close. Yeah. They might not explain them in the way our CFO does, well, yeah, no, but they're going to come pretty darn yeah. close. Yeah, they're going to understand that it's a SaaS business model. They're going to understand that we've chosen to operate as a business that makes more than it spends. They're going to understand that we are adding revenue streams to the business. They're going to understand that we're having our most profitable year ever. And the reason they're going to understand those things is because we talk about them every single month when we get together as an entire company. Yeah, I took a lot of inspiration uh, from Patty McCord, who wrote a book about her time with Netflix. And she talked about how important it was for Netflix to be transparent with their financials uh, with all employees so that if hard decisions ever happen, it won't be a surprise to anybody. Now, fortunately, you know, at, at both companies we're working on, profitability is there. Right. The growth is happening. So we're in, we're in very good times. Right. But, you know, we, we talk very openly so, so that everybody understands what, what we're doing and how things are going. The second thing that was going through my head was a conversation um, I had yesterday with a, with a local venture capitalist who, we, you know, we were talking about the founder's role in a, in a startup and, you know, that, that thing that you said in, in each business, there's somebody with a deep understanding of, um, of the market, a deep understanding of the customer, a deep understanding of the competition. You know, if I, if I had to relay, you know, a a short summary of that 15 minutes of the conversation, I, you know, one of the things I would have said is, you know, from that venture capitalist's perspective, and certainly I, I think this has resonated in my bias as well. I would have said that needs to exist in the CEO, right? Particularly for a small team. Now, my bias there is to say a startup, but that's really a placeholder for a small team, right? right. I I don't know that it necessarily has to be a startup, but what's interesting is, and I'm sure you you understand the the fundamentals of each of the businesses, right? Like that's obviously a given, but you didn't represent that as something that you need, Right. You rep- you represented it more as it needs to be in the business. It doesn't need to be me. Somebody needs to do that. It doesn't, you know, while I need to understand it, maybe that doesn't need to be me. And that that's an interesting idea, which obviously at face value, you see replicated in private equity firms all over the world. Right. Like uh, cl- clearly it, it is probably a venture capital bias that the, the founder as subject matter expert is uh, is is probably more common there, but uh, but it, you know what they do? Yeah, let's let's chop that up. You know what they do? At some point, they supplement that expertise with the expertise of people who understand how to make companies work. There's not a single venture backed firm you can think of, even in this town, where that's not happened. Unpack that for me a little bit more. Give me an example. You don't have to name a company, but <laughs> that's risky. <laughs> but it's all good. At some point, to make a business work, there have to be people in that business that have deep expertise on how companies work, how organizations function, how change gets made, how markets get moved. And sometimes that expertise is not in the founder. Right. Is not in the person who had that spark of brilliance and said, let's do this thing or let's make this service. Let's deliver this product. And I think there there have been a couple of examples locally here where that original founder is super self-aware and knows that. Hey, I just, you know, I'm, I had an awesome idea and I love what we're doing and I want to see this thing grow to its full potential and I need help and help comes, Right. 
and and that's almost always the story with with venture backed companies. They they'll install really high functioning, high performing people, not because the founder or the person who had that spark of brilliance, you know, um, needs bailed out, but because there are competencies required to make companies work. Uh, and that that's what we're we're really focused on having both the competency and the deep subject matter expertise that that makes the product market fit work and the competency and deep subject matter expertise that makes the business work. And that's why both of these businesses now work. They make more than they spend and they're profitable because we have both. And I think, look, to succeed over the long run and to operate as a real business, you have to have both. You can't make it with just one. I can't wait until you guys uh, go get your next company so I can have you on the show again. <laughs> well, well, we'll see, right? I don't, I, you know, there's no imminent plans. That was not a, that was not a threat, by the way. Like, I, yeah. I want to do this again. Yeah. And clearly the pattern is now every time you have another company, you have to come on. So, yeah. Uh, well, you know, two years in maybe. I, I, I come by it very honestly. Uh, I'm very, very proud of, you know, watching and seeing my dad as a serial entrepreneur. Uh, do this so many times and so successfully. Uh, he, you know, he does it. You know, he does it differently than I do. He's a he's a from scratch guy. Like he he's a guy who can sit down, think about a problem, analyze the market, and say, "I got the idea." He's amazing at that. Uh, that's not my skill set yet. I'd love to get there. I'm working hard to get there, uh, but you know. I'm very proud of, of having watched what he's accomplished. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited to be in the game. I'm excited to be, uh, you know, a part of what we're doing and, and excited to look for that next thing. And it's not a wanderlust thing. It is just a curiosity about where else and how else can we make this operating system work? You know, can we really go take a company that we don't have the deep subject matter expertise in and, and make it work better? I'm just really intellectually curious about that. And I, I'm got, we're going to explore. We're going to make something happen. So I'll be back. <laughs> I don't know when that will be. Love it. Uh, but I'll be back and hopefully within the next 24 months. Awesome. Jason, thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. If you're thinking of launching a SaaS product, startup competitors can provide data on your closest competitors survey potential users, or provide other product validation services. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com.